Before we begin, if you are interested in learning more about the security threats facing Ireland and the modern world, do subscribe to The Dark State on Patreon or Apple Podcasts, where you can get access to lots more bonus episodes, which will give you the inside perspective on everything from Russian spies to dissident Republicans. But whether you choose to subscribe or not, I do hope you enjoy this show. This is the first of a series of shows that explore the future of Irish neutrality with both Irish and European experts. I hope these shows will help inform the public so they can have a better understanding of the threats which Ireland is facing and highlight our inability to defend ourselves. Today's guest is Dr. Alexander Clarkson. I'm John Mooney. Welcome to The Dark State. Alex, welcome back to the show. Uh, you're one of the few people that are on the show very regularly, and we always very much appreciate your views and your thoughts. Alex, we're going to discuss Irish neutrality and in many ways the future of Irish defence. Could I ask you to set out your thoughts on where Ireland stands within Europe's security architecture? Well, the first thing I would raise, and I know that's a bit delicate in terms of Irish domestic political debate, is that the reality that once you join the European Union, you enter into a set of not just economic or regulatory commitments, but also a set of policing and security and border security commitments that at least open up the question as to how far a formally neutral state in the EU can genuinely be neutral in the purest form of the sense. I mean, this is one of the reasons the Swiss never joined the EU. The Swiss have always been entirely clear that they do not want to engage into any third-party security commitments beyond some, some broad United Nations commitments, and even there the Swiss are not full participants. And in that context, <coughs> you know, um, once Ireland made the decision to join the European economic community in the early 1970s, it also entered into a political relationship with other states across what has become a kind of very broad-ranging EU system that goes well beyond just member states of the EU to states, any state that ties into aspects of the EU, a qui related to you know, travel, the, the Schengen travel area, to the single market, to regulatory harmonization, to even forms of defense, security, and border control cooperation. So Ireland is essential to that because it is actually an EU member state that is in two of the, two of the three core pillars of the EU system, which is, of course, the currency and, and the single market. Of course, with Schengen and border control, it's, it's a much more delicate position because it's relationship with the, with the UK. So the first point I'd make is, I think the Irish, I think Irish political debate needs to face the fact that it is not a purely neutral state. It has treaty commitments, and also it has a kind of supranational political commitment in what is increasingly a state-like entity, the EU. Not a full state, but has state-like in many aspects, of which it sees itself as, as being at the heart of. And once you're at the heart of the EU, you have a range of commitments to every other member state because it's a reciprocal process. If you want other member states like Finland, like Hungary, like Lithuania, like Greece like Spain or Italy, to stick up for you in relationship particularly to the UK and the current complications of Brexit and the border and the Northern Irish Protocol, which of course is also has a whole security and, 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 and military dimension to it, which is often not touched upon very delicately. 
then there's a reciprocal expectation that at the very least, even if Ireland doesn't commit troops, it commits its full backing and supports to positions Greece or Bulgaria or Romania or Lithuania, you know, Latvia, Finland, Poland take in relation to their own the, the security threats they face. I mean, there's context in Russia or Turkey or you know, for countries like Italy, Libya, the issues in Libya and the Sahel, uh, France and the Sahel. So I think on saying that first, so we have to sort of really, I think a more productive discussion is needed in Ireland about what it means to be neutral and being an EU member state at the same time. The second issue then is, is if Ireland is then at the heart of the EU system and is dependent on it for its survival and its existence for its economic prosperity, or at least for its internal prosperity and stability, then the question is, is well, how can Ireland... Um, contribute to Europe's security architecture. Ireland is actually a very neurologic point for the EU. It, it's it's a it's a state that sort of shields um, a key part of the Atlantic Atlantic waters, which are main uh, you know very close to main travel and trade routes, main communications routes, so they're undersea cables. It plays a key role in global cyber and and, and IT development. And it's the core state of the EU with the closest and most complex relationship with the UK, with which the EU still hasn't been able to develop a stable partnership. Now, in all these different respects, Ireland position, it's, it's posi- Ireland by positioning itself in a certain way in the EU system, and Ireland's position in the global economy, and Ireland's physical geographical position in the North Atlantic and next to the UK, means that, you know, in a way in which the Irish, I don't think, really anticipated maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, is it plays a very important part in Europe's security architecture. And it has to start thinking a little bit about how, if it wants to get things from EU partners and EU institutions how it can reasonably, not by blowing the budget or doing anything crazy, but in a reasonable way also make a contribution to Europe or the EU system's collective security from which it benefits. Would you argue that that obligation is actually a moral one, but also a commercial one? I think moral is always a difficult um, how do you know defining moral obligations and 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 institutional morality um, in both what I do, which is border control, how border systems work, and how that's affected by migration and crises on the others, military and social and economic crises on the side side of the EU borders, and how that affects how that's also led to a militarization of the EU's border system. I think. Or other colleagues like my colleague Lawrence Friedman, or other colleagues like Maxine David, who all work maybe on different aspects of the uh, of Europe's political economy, Europe's uh, security. I think the question of morality and what a moral obligation means is, is is a very very difficult and complex one. I think it's also simply if we look at it in more terms of just hard nosed realpolitik in Ireland wanting to play an influential role, Ireland wanting maybe for the first time in its history to play a central role in shaping Europe's fate. If it wants to play that role, which it can. Which you can, the, 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 that British phrase, punching above its weight. Ireland really does punch above its weight. Right? If it wants to be able to continue doing that, then it has to show all these other EU states from which, who's, from whose collective power it draws this outsized influence and its ability to shape the geoeconomic fate of Europe, it has to show them that it's on the team. It has to show them that um, it respects, understands the pressures they're under and is willing to make certain contributions to, to both, you know, assist in their security, but also show that it has its own security environment under control so it doesn't become a burden on everyone else. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean the Ireland needs to build an aircraft carrier or have 300 jets or 400 tanks. And nobody's expecting that from a state of 4 million people. Nobody expects that from, 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 from Malta or expects that from Slovenia or expects that 
from from the Czech Republic or Slovakia. What be, what's expecting you use is a kind of a, a a willingness to contribute and a willingness to to do s- some work to secure its own environment and at least build the infrastructure around Ireland's economy in IT and cybersecurity terms, around Ireland's coasts in terms of naval terms. That means that it can sort of keep an eye on what's going on, and when it needs assistance, have the infrastructure in place so that when people come to assist, they can slot in easily and do what is necessary to protect Europe's collective security. Right? And I don't think, so in that sense, I think Ireland, it's, it's, it's a much, much more measured and balanced. You can have a, it doesn't necessarily involve a huge amount of spending. It involves just a much more systematic thinking about how Ireland fits in Europe's security architecture, how it can minimize um, its own points of vulnerability. Because as an integral part of the EU, Irish vulnerabilities become European vulnerabilities, just like Lithuanian or Finland, uh, Finnish or, or Romanian or Spanish vulnerabilities become European and through them Irish vulnerabilities. It's a reciprocal process where every side has to make the same effort. And you, you could criticize other EU states for, for, for the same problems. I wouldn't single out Ireland at all for this. And Ireland is by far not the worst in these cases. I mean, the states like Malta and others that are also where you have also this issue of free riding off the effort of, efforts of others. As to extend, does Ireland pose a vulnerability to European security? And if so, how? I, I think if we if we consider a range of, I mean, we, for example, we've had this GRU agent that was uncovered who studied in Ireland, and to everybody's shock and horror, you know, it, you know, it, it, there 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 has been the impression that Ireland has, because it's viewed itself as neutral, because it's viewed itself as um, because it's viewed itself as harmless to others, that it's viewed itself as unthreatening to others but others would not view it as a threat or a problem and leave it alone. And I think what has happened in the last decade, and again, I would not signal out Ireland. I mean, there's much, much worse cases of this. I think Austria has been, frankly, Austria has been, the Austrian domestic politics and Austrian domestic security environment has been an absolute disaster for EU partners because of that kind of, compla- a similar kind of complacency, mm. much less merited complacency, because Austria has always been under pressure throughout the Cold War and after. Right? So I, I wouldn't single out Ireland. There's other states where you can have, see the same dynamics unfold. It's kind of belated realization that if you become a member of the EU, this huge global geoeconomic superpower, and there's also this entity, quasi-state-like thing, very difficult to define kind of thing that's kind of a state in some areas, not at all a state, and others more in confederation or an alliance and others. Depends on which policy field you're looking at. But if you're part of this and the heart of it, then your leadership has access to information flows and policy-making processes that put it, make it a central actor in global affairs. The Irish political elite is part of a collective EU global power elite, but the Irish political elite and security elite is not used to thinking of itself as part of a global power elite because they always view itself as a small, kind of not doing not so well, now doing suddenly a little bit better, you know, the tiger phase. Um, economy that doesn't hurt anyone else, nobody else will hurt it. And I think there's been a kind of belated realization that um, actually it is going to be a target because through, I mean, because, you know, intelligence services in Russia, this is why intelligence services in Russia or Turkey or UAE or China uh, target states like Austria or target states like Ireland because unlike Germany or the Netherlands or France, Spain or Italy who are more accustomed to thinking themselves as spaces in which you know they might have information or access to power that might interest others, a place like Austria or Ireland, to a certain extent Greece, we're just a lot, much less used to thinking of themselves in these terms, or Cyprus, and much less used to thinking of these terms, and we're much more vulnerable to penetration, intelligence operations, um, being used as places to launder money. Also, the same the same calculation as the final point is, is in terms of coastal defense and cybersecurity. Like I'm, Ireland is not used to thinking of itself as part of a of of, of, of a wider federation of states, say. 
uh, whose collective security require uh, a lot of uh, effort to secure uh, trade routes. Also, the Irish also used to rely a lot on the British on this. Can we entirely rely on the British? Can, can the British entirely rely on themselves? We'll have to see over time. But certainly, as an insurance policy, if Britain is no longer unwilling able to help help out, the U.S. is unwilling and able to help out, having a few minimal assets to say you know, uh, oversee, at least monitor what's happening off your coasts. Similarly, in cyber and IT, you make yourself a central actor in global IT and global cyber, cyber cyber economic development, then you're going to have to live with the fact that both commercial and state actors are going to take an interest in what you're doing. So I think that belated realization of this has made the island a vulnerability, but it's not the only state. Several smaller EU states have had to go through this process of suddenly learning and figuring out that, oh, wait a minute, we are, like the Swedish as well, we are actually of interest. I mean, what's happened in Ukraine and around the Baltic Sea has been a profound shock to the Swedes. It's another good example. Mm-hmm. And they've had to sort of scramble to, 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 to develop their own defense and intelligence capabilities. Because again, for similar reasons, the Irish, after the end of the Cold War, the Swedes thought, you know, we're not a problem for anyone. No one's a problem for us. We can just stop investing in any of this security stuff. So I wouldn't single out Ireland. I think Ireland's, the dilemmas Ireland faced is pretty common for smaller EU states, many of which also happen to be uh, neutral as a legacy of the Cold War, the interwar, you know, 1914 to 1945 period. But it is slightly different because Sweden, like Norway or like Finland now, they are applying for NATO membership. Ireland is steadfastly opposed to this. It's it's almost an anathema even to discuss the sub this topic. So we're in a slightly different position because culturally it's really ingrained into the Irish psyche that none of this has anything got to do with us. Well, I think I think you don't have to become. I think first of all, Ireland. Uh, luckily, I think however much people can complain about UK and UK politics, I don't think, particularly if you look at the UK generationally, particularly with people below the age of fifty-five or fifty in the UK politics. I, a lot of the Brexit phenomenon, a lot of the most jingoistic aspects of the Brexit phenomenon, that sentiment is very concentrated among older cohorts in, in the, in the UK, UK voter population. So like, even that, those cohorts would not cause Ireland that kind of trouble. And certainly the, the younger people get in the UK, the less there is this kind of engagement with a certain kind of view of the UK of itself. So Ireland, is Ireland for all the frustrations it has with Britain and all, of, all the kind of the Brits are at it again tendencies in British politics to, to, to think in, in, in neo-colonial terms towards, towards an, its, its former colony. Ireland. I think Ireland does not face the same kind of pressures Finland and Sweden does do in relation to Russia. So however much I think Ireland needs to make a, a should, or I think Ireland has to look at its security component, contribution makes to European security, I don't think it's the need to join NATO is as pressing for Ireland as it would be for Sweden and Finland who are facing Russia. I think we do need to differentiate from that. I think secondly, um, you don't have to be a member of NATO to have a working relationship with NATO. You know, and I think that's that's if 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 things aren't as pressing, what you certainly can do is, and I think the IDF and different Irish intelligence services do have a working relationship with NATO, but you can always scale that up a bit, uh, work a little bit more. And these things have been around for ages, but do a little more in terms of joint exercises. Um, look at um, interoperability, which is also you know something that that I know the Irish Defence Forces do do, but you know, just look at it more systematically in terms of future procurement. 
um, you know, just just develop a kind of co- a, a much more systematic approach. Well, it already exists, but just systematize it, extend it further, of interoperability and cooperation with NATO, um, on the kind of assumption that maybe sometime in future, if you're in real trouble, you can maybe call in for help from states that are basically your allies, like the United States and Europe and, and the EU states and 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 who are in NATO and, and the UK, particularly with the generational drift in the UK to something a bit more less jingoistic. I mean, these are all Ireland's friends, right? So I think, you know, building a strong relationship with NATO doesn't mean you have to be a member of NATO. And the joint, the, the, it's not, the need to join is not nearly as pressing as it would be for Sweden and Finland. And finally, the EU itself has security structures. The EU itself has a nascent military development structure, which Ireland has also, you know, played a bit of a role in, or which at least shown some interest in. So you don't even necessarily have to draw on NATO structures. You can actually look and play a much more integral role in the EU's development of its collective military power. Because, I mean, the EU also has Article 427. It also has a kind of a defense clause that Ireland could fall back on in, 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 in a serious situation around its waters. So... I think I think the debate about NATO can be dealt with much more pragmatically. I mean, you're not in Finland or Sweden's situation. You don't have to join, but you can develop a closer working relationship. And on, on, next to that, you have a whole set of EU structures you can build on, rely on to develop interoperability, develop infrastructure that, say, France or Spain or Italy could slot into if you needed their support quickly. I mean, that stuff is already all there. Just work it more systematically, do joint exercises. Um, and maybe place Irish officers or work more systematically to placing Irish officers and personnel in EU defense and security structures. And, and, and Ireland could land in a quite a reasonable place. So it's not a black and white. It's not, it doesn't need to be a polarized debate. It, needs, it can be quite a pragmatic understanding of, of doing what is politically possible, but then really ex- taking that as far as it is politically possible to secure Ireland and Europe's interests. Given Ireland's current standing or inability to police its own skies or its waters properly and adequately, what can it do to contribute? I I understand this is a fraught issue because you always then end up in this kind of calculation of of like, um, you know, uh, if we buy these like 22 Bayraktar TB2, I know you wouldn't buy them from Turkey, but there's enough European countries now buying knockoffs of that, some uh, producing various knockoffs of cheap surveillance drones. If we buy these surveillance drones, you won't build a hospital in, 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 in Galway or something. I mean, I understand those debates can always be extremely fraught, but I think it's about framing this in terms of um, Ireland's responsibilities to the uh, shared European economy, but also Ireland's self-interest in terms of securing its own waters and securing its own, say, fish, fishing fleet. You, something like a, a drone, a greater um, aerial surveillance capability, uh, capability for, your, for your ocean sea isn't just something you can use for, like, uh, military terms, it's something, something you can use for search and rescue. Like, it's something you can use for all kinds of other policing purposes, anti-smuggling. Um, a lot of narcotics get shifted through waters that aren't that far off Ireland's waters, and they, you know, in various ways to get around controls closer to Spanish Galicia, and they get switched back down to, 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 to dump cocaine on the North Spanish coast. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which, you know, you can invest in patrol capabilities. Like, also... A few more, maybe corvettes, you know, smaller naval craft that can also double up as as as, as uh, search and rescue and, and and a whole range of other things. So to think about in terms of securing Irish waters as um, a a kind of uh, a necessity, so an expansion of the Irish Navy, but one that doesn't mean that it just sits there inertly unless there's like a, a Russian cruiser comes up and down. But to think about it creatively, as for example. A number of different navies around the world with limited resources 
think quite creatively about uh, you know, having uh, having shipping that can both be used for combat and search and rescue capabilities. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't usually use China as an example. There's all kinds of other reasons the Chinese do this that are quite dubious. But the Chinese have kind of pioneered building Coast Guard and search and rescue craft that can be also used for military purposes, like they can double up. So I think there's all, there, there are all kinds of creative ways of ensuring that uh, Ireland has UAVs, has, has USVs, has... Um, uh, limited native naval capability to at least be able to monitor what's going on, keep an eye on it, um, patrol it. You know, maybe maybe put some assets next to a potential security threat, because Ireland won't be able to manage it alone. But certainly, being able to to keep an eye on it and contain it until you know France and Spain or Italy or, or the Netherlands can send in the bigger ships to sort it out, that would be a minimum expectation, I think, from the European security field. You and I have previously spoke about maybe the possibility of Ireland taking on a specific role in the Atlantic or entering into an alliance to oversee that role or take responsibility for that role, that that could turn out to be quite important in an overall context of European security. Would you agree with that? I think it's doable. I think Ireland already has access to those institutions. I mean, I think Frontex is going through a difficult time because... I mean, the empire-building um, uh, <laughs> tendencies of Fabrice Legere, its former head, and his rather undignified exit now, um, has thrown it a little bit into chaos. But, it, it, they're, they're, I mean, the, the drift towards Frontex, the European uh, Collective Coast Guard Agency, which is part of this whole Frontex setup, I mean, the, the awkward problem for Ireland is it only has observer status on Frontex because it's not part of the Schengen zone. But what you're seeing emerging in, in the EU is a much more systematized, much more centralized system of border control, of border monitoring, which is now quasi-military. And there are all kinds of reason, reasons to criticize that. I mean, I find it problematic. It might even be good to have Ireland much more on board with it because Ireland and Irish politicians can bring a, uh, or Irish officials can bring a perspective that can push Frontex, shall we say, in the right directions hmm. in terms of respecting human rights and not becoming overly, overly military in its approach to border control. There are a whole range of other military institutions and structures in the EU has developed and set up and they're beginning to have life to them. So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean, have, mean that Ireland has to reinvent the wheel. It could, it could dock what it's trying to do, what it needs to do, it needs to do for its own self-interest to control its waters and monitor its waters, control its waters to contain a problem. And it will never, I say, if it's a serious problem, Ireland would not be able to, to solve it, but they'll at least have the assets to contain it, keep it under control until its, its, its friends, allies with bigger navies can come in and sort it out. That would be, I think, a minimum to assist. Same goes, say, for cybersecurity on a different plane. In terms of uh, the expectations, Ireland shouldn't be too high, but to have the basic ability to spot a problem, contain it, and then quickly get help, you know, from people who can then then solve it. That that just being the kind of first line of defense around your own territory. That doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have the reserves to keep going, but have be the first of line of defense to contain a problem either in cyberspace or in real space or in, you know, in the space and zones of waters of our security. That should be a minimum ask, I think, for any EU state from the EU system itself. And you don't have to enter into enter NATO. You don't have to invent new structures. The structures to dock that are already there in the EU system. Alex, what will happen if Ireland maintains its current position? Will the UK or the EU simply make arrangements for Ireland to to ensure their own protection. Yeah, well, I mean, this is I think this is the question that you, I would pose to say. Say I was having the same discussion. Say, I mean, the Cyprus has a whole set of different problems, right? But if I was having, a, or this, you were a Maltese colleague asking the same questions, or an Austrian colleague, I think I think you end up with the same answers, right? You say, look, the the whole point for you as Austria, as Ireland, 
as uh, just another good example, Malta, Cyprus, uh, Bulgaria, is to is as a state that has been traditionally been the pawn of others, has had very limited agency within Europe's previous international systems. As the EU be, with the EU, the idea is to enable smaller states to also play an active role to regain more agency within the EU system to be able to shape. Europe's geoeconomic fate. You know, suddenly, as you, as the EU, as an Irish politician or Bulgarian politician, can suddenly become central to 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 to, to Europe's fate, and that's 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 extraordinary opportunity. That's extraordinary strengthening of, of Irish or Bulgarian or you know all these states' Romanian influence or power. But the flip side is, is if you don't contribute or if you don't take an active role, if you don't take the opportunity that's presented to you to shape this security structure, it will be shaped by others. And I think, does Ireland really want to default back into a position where a key element shaping the world around it is left to others? I mean, I mean, in the end, I mean, the Irish, also the Irish political and foreign policy elite can't assume that the British will be permanently, you know, uh, uh, living in a unicorn land of rainbows and Brexit. I think, I think, I mean, there, you can very much sense in London a gradually a shift to pragmatism and a greater understanding that a, that a more grounded relationship with the EU is necessary. That doesn't necessarily mean the UK will rejoin in the next 10 years, but certainly a much more, say post Johnson, a UK government with a much friendlier relationship with the EU, which works with the grain of the EU system, it will not have the same influence as a member of the EU like Ireland would have within UK, but certainly it would have the leverage and the assets to contribute to something to say, look, we're your friends now, uh, we're willing to contribute this, could you listen to our concerns? Um, I think the Irish can't always assume that they'll be speaking, say, almost on Britain's behalf. So I think the risk is if the Irish don't play an active role in shaping these security structures, they will be shaped by others. They'll be shaped by the small states, right? I mean, I think the Estonians, the Latvians, Lithuanians, the Romanians, um, uh, the Czechs, uh, the Portuguese play a very active role in discussion about Europe's security. Finns play a very active role in you know, Europe's security. So it wouldn't would no longer be a, a question of oh, Ireland uh, or or other small states being dictated by a handful of European empires. It would there will be very many small states, small state elites uh, as members of the EU contributing to the development of European security. But you know, if Ireland or an Irish elites, a political and foreign policy, it's the Irish public. If Irish voters don't engage with this more, then others will shape their future for them. And as far as I understood it, the whole point of Ireland joining the EEC and then what's become now the EU and signing on to all of these agreements and becoming part of this crazy state was to make sure that that never happened again to the Irish, that the Irish would always have a say about their future, geopolitical future in, in Europe. And, and I think that would be, it would... I mean, I think that's just a question. Do Irish voters want to have control? Uh, to use a very terrible British Brexitism, but the Irish, Irish, Irish have remarkable control, level of control for a country this size through the EU system, as do the Bulgarians and everyone else that is a small state. So the Irish, do the Irish want to take this opportunity or do they want to sit back and let it be shaped by others? Right? And I think that's, in some ways, the Irish security debates, I'm not this, I, I know this is, a, this is going to get me some mistake, but the Irish security debates um, on a smaller scale remind me a little bit about um, debates in Britain on a grander scale about Britain's geoeconomic position, right? So there's this big, big debate about Britain can strike it out on its own, it, doesn't, it can ignore what the EU does, and so on. And the British really have sort of screwed themselves by walking outside of these institutions and losing the opportunity to shape the world around them. Ireland still has the opportunity to shape the world around it, right? But if it doesn't shape this, the security environment around it, it will it will forfeit that opportunity to others, other small states. And as a final point, one of the key problems in debates around the EU is there's a tendency of behaving as if the geoeconomic is separate from the geopolitical, right? But they're not. To have a functioning internal market and economy, 
you need a political, a stable security environment. Once you have security chaos, look at the Ukraine war and its impact on economies globally. And of course, especially Europe and the Middle East. You know, once you have security chaos, you destabilize the ability of an economy to function, right? For the EU to have a strong and, and, and powerful single market that it can assert itself globally and ensure the internal peace, stability, and prosperity of Europe, it needs to be able to ensure that there's a secure environment, political, military environment around it. That's not a separate problem. So the Irish elite or public and voters can't just sort of say, oh, well, it's just an economic project or it's, it's about a peace project and we'll ignore all the military elements. Without the strong military and security element, you don't have peace and, 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 and economic prosperity. And others in the EU, other small states in the EU understand that, and they are going to shape that. If you don't, you'll have your future shaped by the Czechs, the Bulgarians, the Romanians, and the, and the Greeks who do understand this. Alex, I'm really interested in your views on the following question. Is there an expectation among European nations that anything will change in Ireland? Do they believe that we are undergoing, I suppose, a radical rethink of these security policies that so greatly affect us? Or do they think Ireland will pursue the policies that it always has done, which is to, let, well, let's hope that nothing ever happens? I think that, first of all, the Irish need to draw more t- uh, attention to their security debate. I mean, one of the, look, I mean, to be very honest, I'm, I'm a specialist on EU border systems and border control, EU migration, diaspora, and the militarization of all that. I'll be the only reason I started to spending more pay, paying more attention to Ireland was 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 entirely Brexit driven. I mean, I'll be very honest. I mean, I'm sorry, and some Irish colleagues be annoyed by that, but that's just very a lot of people, not just in the UK but also in Europe. I think that that's also actually an, 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 an interesting side issue is, is only really started paying attention to Irish affairs in a detailed way. Um, because of how that interrelated with Brexit and how that then affected the rest of the EU system. And the Irish were then benefited from the fact that the EU system is based on internal solidarity and, of course, that European attention towards Irish interests, which the Irish Ministry of Foreign Affairs did an excellent job, and this is what I come back to, at drawing at that European attention to the Irish, Irish, Ireland's dilemmas, strategic dilemmas that were inflicted upon it with no fault of the Irish by them, on themselves. Um, I think that the Irish MFA, or at least Irish Irish MOD, needs to maybe think about this in terms of the security debate, that they need to pay, draw more European attention to themselves and what they're discussing. Engage more with European partners. Go out there, do a big, like a big, you know, Munich-style security conference in Dublin, right? And bring all the kind of big name, or even medium, or even through them also the medium-level officials and analysts and scholars, to Dublin to debate this and engage with this and, 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 and build contacts with them. Because the, the problem I think Ireland faces more is it's beginning to have this fraught debate. And Europe is just sort of ticking on. EU is, the EU system is moving on. And the EU system faced with Ukraine is moving very, very quickly. The EU system is this kind of big, giant beast that moves super slowly 90% of the time, and then when hit over the head with a hammer, suddenly rushes into hyperactive activity and starts building structures in, 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 out of existential fear. Right? And, and I think we're seeing this on the security and, 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 and military dimensions of what the EU is as an, as, as an entity. Because, again, what's making the EU, other EU states very nervous is that you know, the Americans came back, once again had to come in and be the quarterback right? to the, the people who guided the West's or Europe's game against an existential threat. But there were a lot of people, for the first time since Trump was elected and across the EU system, are now very aware that we're super lucky that Biden's in power. And then we have to think a little bit about what happens if the Americans aren't willing to do this in, in a future crisis. And so there's a lot moving and that's a lot happening. So, and if the Irish don't draw attention to themselves and say, look, we want to be part of this debate, we're having also a very fraught internal debate, what do you guys think? 
then people aren't going to pay, pay attention to Irish concerns and Irish specificity. So I would actually take it a, a step further. I think that if the Irish want to have influence on this process, the first thing they need to do is just draw attention to themselves and, 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 and invite tons of people. And <laughs> I have a Dublin security conference. Right, and say we actually want to be an actor, and we, we're not. I mean, you can be honest. Irish political elites, even you know somebody like Coveney, could just be honest and say, "Look, we don't exactly know where we want to fit in this, but we'd like to talk with you guys about where you know what would you, where would you, we won't necessarily agree with you, but where would you like to, uh, us to fit in this?" The, the, the conversation with Ireland hasn't even got to that point, right? And I'll, I'll say again, <clears throat> the Balts are very good. The Baltic states have been doing this since long before the first Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Right, from the start of Baltic, even before they joined the EU, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Estonians were systematically attracting every security actor. They had conferences. They really worked very, very hard to attract attention to the problems. And, and they got a lot of high-level and lasting engagement from the rest, from even the, from the French and the Italians, even, right? And, and, and to, to, to really engage with, 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 what's, with what's taking place. Like a negative example of how not to do it for me is Malta. Malta has huge problems in the Mediterranean. Huge problems, but they sort of—I mean—but for reasons which you could debate and discuss, also reasons that are about the deeply problematic nature of Maltese domestic politics. They sort of sit back and let others make the decisions, and have never really played a, um, a, a, a active role in trying to shape the environment around them. You know, and because you know, you know can, maybe they can't. Cyprus, again, is a classic case of that. So I mean, there are also negative examples. Austria. But, you know, the Baltic states are a good example of, of them getting in and saying quickly, you know, even before they get in, saying, we need to make our problems their problems. <clears throat> and, and we need to get their attraction and we need to have, have, a, have a high level of dialogue. And through that, these, again, punching above their weight, right? The Finns, the Lithuanians, the Estonians, uh, the Latvians have, have made, um, are, are central parts of the EU security debate in a way in which Ireland is not. And do you understand that there is huge ignorance of these issues amongst the Irish public? And indeed, many people listening to this podcast today will be completely bemused at the notion of Ireland taking a more proactive approach in defending European security. It's something that is almost cultural within this country, that defence and security matters aren't really serious issues for us as a society to consider. Yeah, but I mean, I think that comes down to, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I'm aware of that. I also find, you can see it also in Irish popular culture, the way the Irish defense forces are sort of denigrated. Hmm. Like, oh, the Irish army, ha ha. I mean, it, it's really bad. I mean, I, I, I find it, it's just as an outside view, I find it genuinely shocking. You know, like, I mean, the Irish army is actually a half decent, I mean, it really has morally, uh, there's a lot worse militaries in Europe. Like, you're not talking about an army like the Portuguese military that is only just recovering from a century of colonial war and have, have, has, has been doing its, in a very respectable way, has been doing its damnedest for the last 30 years to try to improve its reputation quite successfully, right? Ireland doesn't have to deal with that legacy. I just use the Portuguese are just one of very many examples you find that the European militaries have to face, right? Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just, I have always found this kind of thing baffling about, it's like a joke, and the thing is, is that the problem with that is, is that it does seem to reflect an inability to take the idea that military security is a serious matter and that if you want to be a fully, I mean, sovereignty is always a fraught concept, um, particularly if you start pooling it in the EU system. But if you want to be an active element of the EU system and a sovereign state that has the power to shape the world around it, you also need to take military and security issues seriously. 
because the ability to use force or to at least the very least container problem contributes to solving it is fundamental for a state's ability to also influence developments around it in a way that it's in the interests of itself and its voters. And so, and I think it also comes back to a kind of disconnect that you have not just in Ireland when it comes to discussing the EU, the idea that you can have a geoeconomic project that just stays economic. And I think there's a real, I think this is also a problem, I would argue, in a way in which, um, you know, basic economic history is taught in, in universities and schools. And not just in Ireland, I'd criticize this more broadly, is, is that particularly the way my department, <laughs> sort of like booster KCL here, but European International Studies at KCL, our Department of Political Economy at KCL, and our War Studies Department at KCL, the first thing we do and everything we teach is to say, you know, there is no divide between the economic and the political and the military. All these three things are intertwined with one another. We do not teach them separately, right? They're part of an integrated process of political economy and military strategy. The geopolitical and geoeconomic are not separate. And once you cross that threshold, you begin to understand how, if you're interested in the, you know, economy, you know, in, in management, you need to have a bit of an understanding of how the military works. If you understand how, if you're interested in the military, you have to understand a little bit about <coughs> how the cyber and IT business and, and, and how economics work. You have to understand both. Right, it's it's a, <coughs> a, a sort of a, <laughs> a Lori will kill me for this. A Clausewitzian understanding <laughs> of, of global political economy, but I mean, it, I think I think um, ultimately that's I think that's something that it has to be sort of embedded in the way you understand the way global politics and international relations work. And if you don't develop an institutional culture that understands that there is no divide between geoeconomic and geopolitical, both are intertwined with one another, then you can sort of wander off. Like the British ended up doing this. Like wander off and believing that you know, um, you know, you can ignore whole swaths of policy because uh, they don't matter and they're not relevant, and and we can sort of sort them out. But you know, and because and and you lose a sense of how different things are interconnected with one another. And I think the danger for a state like Ireland is it has a lot of opportunities in the way it's positioned itself. But if it doesn't use those opportunities, <coughs> it will have its future determined by others, even if it's friends. I mean, I mean, it's like it's nice to have friends. <laughs> making decisions that would be generally, genuinely okay for you, but do you really want them to make the decisions for you, or do you actually really want to also take an active part, even if they're your friends, in, in, in shaping your future? And I think that's, that's really a decision that Irish voters and Irish elites have to make for themselves. I would like to thank Dr. Alex Clarkson for taking the time to talk to us today, and thank you, listener. Wherever you are in the world, I look forward to your return to the dark state. Thank you so much for listening, and do stay safe. 